This episode is brought to you by the Christian Culture Builders Group on Facebook and MeWe. Believers in Jesus optimistically working to create great commission hubs for the propagation of the gospel, the furthering of Christ's kingdom, and the emergence of robust, fruitful Christian culture. We work through the three spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state, and the pillars of influence in society to make it happen. Check out the Christian Culture Builders Group on Facebook or MeWe today. Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective, with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And so begins one of the most epic narrative universes of certainly the last century, possibly of all time. I'm talking, of course, about the Lord of the Rings story universe. That's what we're talking about today on the Think Podcast. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. My name is Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, the Lord of the Rings is a timeless work. It's an absolutely classic uh, body of literature that will be remembered and cherished for generations to come. But is it a Christian story? Can we learn anything about the gospel by reading it? And just what does it mean for a story to be Christian anyway? Well, my guest today is Michael Jahoski. Michael is Assistant Professor of Humanities at St. Petersburg College in Clearwater, Florida. Michael a Roman Catholic, also teaches apologetics classes in a local Protestant church and is involved in campus ministry. Michael's academic background is in classical, that's Greco-Roman, Greek and Roman, as well as biblical history, as well as, get this, philosophy, theology, and the arts. Talk about some bona fides. He earned his two bachelor degrees, that's two, from the University of Central Florida and holds a master's from the University of South Florida. Michael routinely includes the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis in his humanities classes. He's the author of the brand new book, The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle Earth, and he joins me today to help us answer the question, just how Christian is the Lord of the Rings? So without any further ado, Michael, welcome to the Think Podcast. That was a heck of an intro. Thank you, Joel, for having me. I'm thrilled to be on. Well, it's my pleasure, man. You know what? I actually downloaded a couple of new backgrounds for our show today. So if you're watching oh. live, look at this. We've got, yeah, you this. can't really see that, but but I'm going to yeah. take us out of the picture so people can see. This is a, a picture of the Shire here. Just a second. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. There we go. Okay, we're back, and uh, so we've got we, we've got some various Lord of the Ring Lord of the Rings themed backgrounds for our viewing audience. If you are watching live on Facebook and YouTube, go ahead and drop a comment below. And um, Mr. Jahoski, I always want to say Jahoski. I don't know. Yeah. Do you ever get that? No, I get I get all sorts of exotic uh, spellings and pronunciations. Everybody likes to add a C or a Z in there, and. Yes. My students, they, they they really have been creative, but no, you nailed it. It's Chahosky. Chahosky. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, so Michael's going to be sharing, uh, going to be answering some questions for us at the end. Um, I don't know, Michael, are you okay to do that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if there's any point, you know, in the middle, if it's pertinent, we can stop if it's it's your show. So if you want me to answer them at any point, I'm happy to do so. Perfect, perfect. Well, yeah. we've already gotten some questions coming Great. in. Um, before we do, before we do, uh, before we get into the meat, um, yeah. let me go ahead and let's pitch your um, your your book here because people, I'm telling you, people are going to want to get this book after this episode. They're probably going to want to get it um, while we're talking. So I'm going to go ahead. I put the the uh, web address there where you can get 40% off of Mike Michael Jahoski's book, The Good News of the, of the Return of the King. You can um, go to tinyurl.com slash book. That's J-A-H-O-S-K-Y book. And then if you use the code C-O-N-F 2020, you can get 40% off. And that's actually, that'll link you right to um, Michael Heiser's podcast page. So that's how you know you've hit the big time when yep. you're on Michael Heiser's podcast page. It was, I nerded out on it a little bit. I tried to contain <laughs> it, but I couldn't couldn't help it, so... Well, you're, uh, I know that you're, uh, I don't think it'd be inappropriate to say you're a fan of Michael Heiser. Is that fair? No, definitely. Don't agree with everything, but yes, I'm a fan of his work. Yep. Yeah. You always got to put that disclaimer in there, right? Yeah, of course. I know. Don't we? Yeah. Yes. Well, well, well so uh, here, and here's your blog. Uh, so if you mm -hmm. want to check out Michael Jahoski's blog as well, um, you can go ahead and go to, let's see, it is last Dunadan. Yeah. com dot wordpress.com how am I, am I pronouncing that right you are yeah it's one of the monikers for aragorn so some of the nerds out there will get it <laughs> got it got it got it okay good all right all you yeah. nerds go check that out and <laughs> uh and literature fans mm -hmm. fans of uh, uh tolkien and then if you just want to get into tolkien a little bit mm -hmm. um this is this looks like a great place to start so okay. it's the author blog of michael Jahoski. so go check yeah. that out um right after this show you're going to want to Take a look at that, um, Michael. Would you, would you just? I mean, look. All I had to do was post the question on Facebook: Is Lord of the Rings a Christian story? And I got a small taste of what you you must be going through on a daily basis. Oh yeah, <laughs> because it was fireworks, man. It was more mm -hmm. fireworks than Gandalf can, uh, uh, you know, created <laughs> during his entrance into the Shire. That's I right. I mean, it was it was. Um, it was pretty amazing how yeah. many people know it can't be Christian because of this reason, or right. it can't be Christian because of this completely different reason, or mm. of course it's Christian right. and uh, for this reason or that reason. So, so sure. look, that's kind of the big question that we're going to dig into today. Is mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings a Christian story? Yeah, it is. Um, but in true parabolic fashion, we'll learn about parables today. It's a yes and no answer. And that's how it should be. It's paradoxical, like the incarnation himself, and uh, defies you know complete comprehensive understanding. Only God has that kind of understanding, and He's fit to reveal that to us. So I think the reason why we see people polarizing over it is because there's truth on both sides. And like any good paradox, and you know the the Hebraic background of the Bible, the Jewish uh, worldview has always been comfortable with uh, paradox, or some call it antinomy. You know, uh, not the same as contradiction. You know, I think it is kind of a yes and no. And finding out exactly how it is, yes, it is a Christian story. And then no, the no part is still part of the yes part, if that makes any sense. it It's complicated and we should let it and allow it to be complicated. 
And the, I think it has to do with the form that the book takes, but we'll get into that. The yeah. analytic philosopher in me right now is screaming because you said the no part is also part of the yes part. I know, so, I know, I know. There's no better gotta, way I can fit to <laughs> explain no, it. It's good. It's good. So let's um, yeah. let's yeah. go ahead and, and dive in a little bit. Thank you for sure. that that introduction. Sure. Uh, so Michael Chahosky, what is behind your passion for this literary world of J.R.R. Tolkien? And is it Tolkien or Tolkien? I think it's Tolkien, but uh, I've, I I slip and say it either way, just in the midst of talking. So T Tolkien is usually how it kind of comes out in a slur of speech. But um, yeah, he even has a letter where I think he tried to correct the pronunciation and somebody had written him about the uh, the Germanness of it. And anyway, he's he's even got a pronunciation guide in his letter. So Tolkien uh, is close to my heart because uh, I rediscovered Christ and discovered Tolkien at the same time. And just a little bit of backstory on that in a second. But to answer your question, you know, my passion really has to do with just stories. Uh, I came to understand that Jesus primarily spoke in stories only after reading Tolkien. And you might say, well, come on, that's a duh, mm. that's a no brainer. But it took kind of going the indirect route for me to understand that. And so it's really my love of stories. And it's been my apologetic and, and little ministry that I do, even in my classroom, uh, and outside it, that I've learned that stories sometimes say best what needs to be said. And I'm quoting C.S. Lewis there, who has a great little essay called Sometimes Fairy Stories Say Best What Needs to Be Said. And so mm -hmm. I've learned that the way of um, inhabiting Jesus's sacramental vision of the universe, of reality, the one, the only one that we live in, is best uh, understood through story. And so it's really that passion, but it's it's my passion for Jesus. It's my passion to to, to invite people into the story world that Jesus has created and to say, well, what if, what if this is true? And to get them to consider that and to, to help make them disciples, right? And I, I think, again, one of those authors, you, you read, you, you agree and you disagree, but Scott McKnight had put it, uh, you know, the church sometimes is so interested in making converts that we forget how to make disciples. And I see that you're really good at doing that. You've got some really great things uh, that hammer and anvil, by the way, looks awesome. I'm interested in that. So, you know, we need to be interested in making disciples out of people, not just converts. And it's important to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and in our heart believe that, but we need to, to get people to um, understand the process of belief can sometimes be very long. Stories help us to do that. And so it's, it comes back to my passion for stories. Um, and I can say more about my background now, or we can, you know, say it later. I don't know. Oh, dive in, man. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, you know, br yeah, briefly share us briefly, a little yeah. bit more of your, your background and your backstory. Sure. For, Joel did an, uh, thank you. You did an excellent introduction and I think it's best to kind of leave it as, as he said it, you know, I'm a bit of a walking contradiction maybe to some, but, uh, it's because I'm still praying and searching for a church home for my family. I was raised, uh, baptized and received first communion as a Roman Catholic in the nineties as a kid, I'm dating myself. And um, we drifted away from the church. My parents got divorced. Uh, my mom rediscovered uh, kind of a, you know, um, baby Christianity. What we later found out was prosperity gospel. Joyce Meyer was on every day. A lot of Christians can probably relate to this. And this was about 2001. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't go back to Catholicism. Nobody in my family really did. And um, that's kind of what started my quest for this book. I didn't know it at the time. So I was just kind of there as a Christian. I didn't know what it meant. And 
through all the years of high school and undergrad and even into graduate school, it really wasn't until I read N.T. Wright, who it just so happens, just so happens, I didn't plan this, obviously. I read his book, Simply Jesus, I think the year it came out, 2011, I think 10 or 11, which is uh, right when I started teaching as a, as a professor of humanities. And, um, you know, I just started thinking about so many things, but I'm like, his description of the gospel sounds like something I had heard before. Sounds like the Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, well, that can't be right. That doesn't make any sense. And then it began to make sense. And then from 2010 to the present, let's say, which is the last decade, I have, um, starting in 2013, been teaching at a Presbyterian church. Uh, but at actually two points, I think in 2015, and then again, just this past summer, when I was finishing the book, and for those of you that do buy the book, you'll read in the preface and introduction that I decided to return to the Catholic church. I still, in my heart, there are parts of me that want to, and my wife too, but I'm still, we're still praying on it. And so we are kind of in the middle of things and uh, we're no longer active at that church um, for reasons I don't want to state here, but uh, a conversation for another time, but we are um, trying to find a home. And so I am um, trying to be ecumenical in this book as best I can, but I have a unique perspective, I think, to bring to the table. Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I got to tell you, man, the, the more I have found out about your backstory, the more intrigued I've been because, um, you. you know, okay, so here's this guy's a, uh, you know, a Roman Catholic and he's teaching apologetics classes at a Presbyterian church. And, yeah. you know, there's there's got to be there's got to be a good story there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, I, but I've appreciated, you know, getting to learn that in bits and pieces. I kind of feel like I'm reading the Lord of the Rings a little bit, how yep. the, the different details come in and, uh, yep. and, 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 you know, that, I think that's one of the things that make Lord of the Rings so realistic is the way the details all fit together. And so mm -hmm. I'm very much looking forward to um, unpacking that with Me you. Too. How did you know that it was time to write this book? Yeah, I thought long and hard about a fancy answer to this, but I'll just be blunt. I, I was fed up with the books I was reading. And and in a good way, I was just, you know, I was reading so many Tolkien studies books, some that were biblical scholars and some that were not. And since we already did the the shout out to Mike Heiser, you know, on his podcast, I kind of, we, we got into this and he said, I think he said something like this. He said, I think what many of these scholars needed was a good shot in the arm of biblical theology. And I, I was just dissatisfied with a lot of the books on the subject. I mean, I remember, I won't name names, um, but I can always provide them. But it's not a personal thing, of course. It's the academics I had an issue yeah. with. It, it, so, for example, James Stuart Bell, I think, I don't know him very well, but had a, a book about the spirituality of The Hobbit. But I felt like he got so close to pointing out why is it at various points do The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit of the Silmarillion and all of them seem like Christian stories and then not seem like Christian stories? And I felt like the answer was right there and then he took it away. And so there was that experience. And then I said, you know, I got to write this book because I've got to figure out why I'm journaling at during Advent, uh, you know, way back in 2015 and 2014, even when the movies were coming out, the Hobbit movies. And I'm trying to like, just get out on paper. Why do these movies, why did these books all these years affect me so much? I'm like, I got to write a book about this. Mm. I've got to make sense of it for myself. So that's really the answer. But it's also because I felt like we could do better. And the more I dug into allegory, metaphor, parable, the more I understood that not only is there not a great amount of agreement here, there's not a consensus, but there are some very good arguments that I present here in this book that I think will satisfy people who have struggled to articulate this. So that's why. Yeah. I no, I, I can see that. I, I got to say, I've been looking forward to this conversation because 
prior to reading your book, and I did finish it yesterday. Thank you. Um, I was unconvinced. Actually, I, I'll say this. I was very much leaning toward Lord of the Rings not officially being a Christian story. Sure. A lot of that has to do with an article I'm going to bring up to you later, which is very, very much on the popular level, mm-hmm. but but it's a website a lot of people go to. I've seen it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We'll so, so I was I was leaning in that direction. Mm-hmm. After reading your book, I'm leaning in the other direction, but I want to get a few okay. things straight. I want to clarify a few things. Certainly. Why, Michael, why is this question important for, you know, it's, it's just a book, right? It's, you know, there's lots of books out there. There's Harry Potter, there's, mm-hmm. there's uh, the Handmaid's Tale, which is like, you know, mm-hmm. all anybody can talk about nowadays, but why oh, is it important it. to talk about Lord of the Rings? Why is it important to understand whether this is a Christian story? I want to I want to answer this question, but I want to point out, you know, like with the Witcher books, which I enjoy even just for research, and I enjoy them just as stories themselves. But they're dark, very uh, existentialist, postmodernist kind of mixture of worldviews. A lot of people don't make an issue when we say those worldviews are at play in those books. I, I haven't seen anybody make a fuss about it, but we make a huge fuss when we say that Christianity is at the heart of Lord of the Rings. And I think you and I know why that is. I think it's because. Maybe, and this might be brazen to some, but I think it's because maybe we sense, what if it's true? And if it's true, and this is a powerful delivery of that story, that's that's making me uncomfortable. Wow. So, you know, I think that's part of it. I want to get more into Peter Kreft, who was a Protestant turned Catholic scholar who has written about this too, but we'll get to that in some of your questions later. So back to the point, um, I think Mark 434 gives us an answer because he said everything to them in parables. And uh, and when he spoke to them, everything in parables, Jesus spoke primarily in parables. And again and again, in my bibliography, I can point out books where several of these great biblical scholars and Tolkien scholars have pointed out, this is something we need to make central to our theology. Jesus is telling us, among many other things, that there's something uh, important about the process of coming to understand who he is and what the gospel is all about and how those things are related. And just the process of coming to belief, you know, you think of the man in the gospels, who I think it was his daughter was sick. I might be getting this mixed up, but he says, help me with my unbelief, which is just a every believer's cry. We need to, to kind of understand that this was also important to Tolkien. He wanted to write a story that was not an, a violation of what one of his friends calls the art of the parable, but that was still a Christian story. And I think it's because he understood that stories were important to Jesus. And so they must be to all Christians. Um, what else I can say here, um, and I'm just looking at some notes I prepared. There's some things we can say sure. later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tolkien's letters, I just, I think that's where we, we should stop with this is it's important because it was important to him and it was important to him as a, as a, a Christian more broadly and a Catholic more specifically. And so I think that should raise some flags and that one of his Jesuit friends from the 1940s onward and into the 1990s, he finally produced a sermon and an essay in Tolkien's honor called Tolkien and the Art of the Parable. And he kind of latched onto this. That should tell us something. Uh, and so I think it's important to understand. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's uh, that reference you made was Mark nine twenty four. It was a boy's father uh, who yes. the boy had an evil spirit and you right. know, the, the father that's cried it. out to him. And I love that verse. I I've, I've preached yeah. on that verse when I was a pastor. It's, very powerful it expresses yeah, a lot of the christian story um yes. and i think that you I, I appreciate how you articulated that you know why this is important for mm-hmm. us to understand and there's this word you keep using parable and yeah. we're going to get into that so if you're <laughs> if you're watching from home right now or or uh in your car or whatever 
Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully you have the, the video turned off. As handsome as Michael and I are, you, <laughs> you want to turn off the video while you're driving. Please. Um, Please. We are going to unpack this idea of parable. Yeah. And, and you know, this, I, I will say this idea of Tolkien being Roman Catholic, this has got to come up as well. We've it, it's mm -hmm. it's an elephant in the room for a lot of these discussions when we're talking sure. about is a story Christian or not? And someone goes, mm -hmm. yeah, of course it's Catholic. There's a lot of people mm -hmm. who are going to go exactly my point, and there right. and there's going to be people on both sides who are going to say exactly my point. That's mm -hmm. why it is, or that's why it isn't. But right. before we right. dive into that, Michael, yeah, briefly, and we're going to unpack this. But what is the good news of the return of the king? So I think it's the story of a long, long known, prophesied, exiled king who's living in exile, who comes back and brings the good news that everything is going to be okay, and that things might not start to look that way right away, uh, but they will slowly start to get better, and that we have to live in between that moment of announcement and the moment of its final consummation. Christians who are listening know that this is the already and not yet aspect I discuss in chapter two of my book right. that has been well pointed out by Protestants and Catholics and Orthodox people, Christians um, on, on all sides of the church. And I think that's the good news. And in a nutshell, the good news is that uh, Jesus saves us from our sins. And I, I know that there will be some concerns that um, there is no salvific figure, or at least you think, in the Lord of the Rings. And I want to address that right now. No, there's not. There doesn't have to be for it to be about a salvific king. It, mm. it gestures away from it just in the way that Jesus's parables don't save, Jesus saves, but Jesus spoke in parables, indirect speech to get us to look at that reality. So I think if we can keep that distinction in mind, we don't need to expect a dying and rising Messiah. Although, as you'll hear me say, there are some points in the story where you might think maybe it is in there, mm. maybe it's not. So I think that's important. I think uh, that's what the good news of the return of the king is. It's good news that, and Peter Kreft says in his book, The Philosophy of Tolkien, we don't have kings in America. We don't have them, but we want them. And there's something in our subconscious, he says, like an Arthur sitting on a throne that yearns to return to our conscious minds. We we want this. What is it about this story? I've heard Tim Keller preach on this, and I've been praying for him. I know he's he's going through treatment for cancer right now, but he's been a formative influence in my life, and he's written about this. Um, you know, this is so there's something about the the type, the biblical type of the king, and just this universal type that affects us. And we'll yeah. get into that. But yeah, I think that's succinctly what it is. That's the good news of the return of the king. Okay. All right. Well, that's helpful. A uh, lot to chew on there and a lot for us to unpack. But uh, be before we do, I got to know, man, what's better, yeah. the movies or the book? The books. Yeah. Books. However, yeah. No question? No question. However, there's there's some really nice treats in there for like the, uh, the last Hobbit film, The Battle of the Five Armies, I think was 2014. No, yeah. no, no. Is that right? Yeah, 2014. Oh, oh yeah, that, that, that could be right. There were there was 2012, 2013, 2014. I'm, somebody will point it out in the comments. But um, in it, there's a moment, and I talk about this in my book in chapter three or four, where Gandalf sees Thorin charging into battle. And that scene is so much better in the books, but they didn't do half bad. And uh, Bilbo says something like, what are they doing? And Gandalf, with a glint in his eye, says they're rallying to their king. And, and if you don't get goosebumps with that, with the music yeah. and the image... Yeah. And think of Jesus, or even the Old Testament kings, Josiah, riding out to battle between the Assyrians and the Egyptians, even. You think of all these things, and there's little Easter eggs like that that you know make the movie splendid and, and nice, but 
they're kind of a mess in some other areas. So um, let's not, yeah. I don't want to get red in the face and get into that. So I'll, I'll just sure. calm down and put that to the side. Yeah. That's, that, that, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. You know, um, several, like, let's say about three months ago, my wife and I wanted yeah. to start going through a, a daily Bible reading with the kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've read through a few of the New Testament books. I think we've gone through all the gospels with them over the last few years, but um, wow. we wanted to turn to the Old Testament. And my, so we started, I'll cut to the chase. We started with Joshua and we've mm -hmm. read now through Joshua, one one section at a time, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Kings, Second Kings, uh, I'm sorry, First Samuel, Second Samuel. We're in First Kings, I believe. No, 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 no. We skipped ahead. We're in um, we're in Matthew now because it's Christmas. But mm -hmm. the reason we started with Joshua, Michael, is because my thinking was this: what section of the Bible is most Narnia or Lord of the Rings esque? You know, who's going to have the battles? Who's going to have the grandeur? And I tell you, the amazing thing as you read through the history of Israel. Mm -hmm. And you read the story of David, who's the warlord in exile and, you know, running from Saul. And then he rises to the throne and there's all these moral battles and mm -hmm. whatnot. Now, Jesus is not mentioned in any of those stories. And, and, and those stories are not uh, uh, parabolic. They are historical. Mm -hmm. But but Jesus is all over those stories. All over it. The yeah. king in exile who returns yes. and takes the throne. And, and, and after reading your book, um, you know... <laughs> those themes absolutely just jump from the pages of scripture. Good. So Good. very, very cool. Yes, um, they should. Thank you. Yeah. And you know what? It's because they're prefigurations, not predictions. And Richard Hayes has that great, and you know about this with your background, Richard Hayes has a book called Echoes of uh, the Scripture in the Gospels. And, and he talks about the necessity for, and I talk about it in my book, the retrospective hermeneutic of interpreting scripture from the position of the risen G Jesus in Luke 24 on the Emmaus road, looking yeah. back from the risen Jesus. And he tells us to search Moses and the prophets in the writings to find him there. He doesn't tell us how to do it, which is intriguing, mm -hmm. but he tells us to expect exactly what you just described. Yeah. These prefigurations that are, that only really make sense once you know about that second event, the risen yeah. Messiah. So that's yeah. powerful. Yeah, that's really good. I've, I've got this um, apologetic argument, which I think is original, I don't know of anybody else who who um, has something similar, but it's basically an argument from foreshadowing. And oh, awesome. I talk about I talk about um, how if you if you if you don't recognize the foreshadowing, not direct predictions, if no. you don't recognize the foreshadowing in the Old Testament that foreshadows the gospel and foreshadows Christ, th then uh, categorically you, you can't recognize you basically have to do away with foreshadowing as a literary concept because it's so obviously there. And the only way you can have foreshadowing is if there's one author overseeing the story. Yes. Moses can't foreshadow something that happened uh, 1500 years after his, his death. No, you know, but foreshadowing is possible if you've got a Tolkien or if you've got a divine author writing scripture, Yes, you can foreshadow yes. themes. So there's a lot of that. Could you give us, um, for those, yeah. for those who are maybe newbies when it comes to the world of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and mm -hmm. the Hobbit, can you just give us like a, 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 a an elevator pitch yeah. for what is the story about? What, what is this world about? Well, I think it's the most succinct elevator pitch I could give you, and I'll elaborate a little bit, is in the um, one of the last chapters of The Return of the King, the third part of The Lord of the Rings. And uh, Bilbo has left some titles on his journal 
the Red Book of Westmarch, and Frodo has seen that he's gone through several. And then he adds the downfall of uh, Sauron and the Return of the King. That's the title of their journeys from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And this is in the universe, right? So he gives that title to the events inside the universe. So it's a cool conceit. Yeah. And I think that's it right there. I mean, that's what the story is about. Now, that's what The Lord of the Rings is about. The downfall downfall of Sauron, a manifestation of evil, not mm. the and not the only one in Middle Earth or Arda as the world is called, um, and the return of the king. And that's what's in Tolkien's letters too, which I'll get into. But more than that, I would say, look, the, the Silmarillion is a lot of things. It, there's, um, you know, he's been, he, he worked on it his whole life throughout the 20th century. Uh, it, it is, I'm not reducing it to just this, but elevator pitch. It's the creation myth. Mm. It's the primeval history. It's the patriarch-esque stuff. Mm. I'm speaking parabolically here. I don't mean it one for one. Um, but it has a little, little of that. And of course it's unique in its own right. The Hobbit is more of the same. I liken the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. No, are they exactly like the Old Testament? Of course not. Are they on the same level? You got to be kidding. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Right. But they, they're like an imaginative version of that scriptural experience. So they're kind of like the Old Testament, if you will. And Tolkien in the letter, he says, part of the attraction of the, and the appeal of the Lord of the Rings, I think, is what he says, is the glimpses in the Lord of the Rings book to these other books. And so he, again, kind of says, look back, almost like exactly what Jesus says to do. Mm. And so that's what it is. And you have the, the themes are very clear, creation, fall, and they're very similar to what we have in the Bible, yeah. if not almost crystal clear. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, however you want to divide up the, the meta narrative, but that's what it is for me. And it's in there. And, um, and then there's an unfinished sequel we'll get into, but that's it. I think that's a good summary. Um, there's so much more to say. Yeah, no, that that's uh, that's helpful. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about. Yeah. Um, well, uh, okay. You know what? Really quickly, because there are some watching, and I would imagine with with our audience, it's a fairly literate audience. Yeah. Um, uh, that being said, I would imagine that there's some who are still more outsiders to this whole world. Can you explain just briefly what has made the Lord of the Rings story? And I'm speaking about all the stories combined viewed as one universe. What has made this so popular? Why has it endured so stinking well to the fact that they keep making new versions of it? You know, yeah. Netflix, I guess, or, or whoever has got this new yeah, version Amazon. coming out. Yeah. Amazon, right, right. Which is probably going to be terrible. Yeah, uh, from what it's yeah, Narnia is going to Netflix, I think. So I'm I'm like okay. you probably. I'm a little skeptical, but yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. We'll see. You, you we'll got see. you got. Well, part part of that skepticism comes from the fact that you've got pagans making what uh, essentially a Christian story. Yeah, you know, yep. as much as we might debate it, Tolkien was mm -hmm. some brand of Christian. The story yeah. is some brand of Christian, and yep. now you've got people with a very different worldview. I um, know, I know. What's I made this? Have, yeah. Sorry, please. No, no. Go ahead. No, no. So your question, uh, what's made it so appealing is hard to answer, but I'll, I'll offer what I say in the book. And I think it's because people want it to, to, to be real because it is real. It feels real. And the best thing I can do is stand on the shoulders of great scholars that I owe a great debt to in this book. That I've paid uh, homage to you. And, uh, and I just want to say thank you, especially to Peter Kraft. He's really changed my life and the way he wrote about this because he kind of pointed it out for me first in many ways that Wright didn't. He did the kind of scholarly side of things. But Kraft, he says it feels like 
reality. It, it bears endless rereadings. You can pour into it and bore into it again and again. And you can do that with Jesus's parables. Now, am I saying that that's what makes the Lord of the Rings a parabolic novel, as one scholar has called it? Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily, but it, it doesn't not make it. it. It does kind of almost start to build a case that just the fact that you can go back and you can read Jesus's parables and not be familiar with the settings and yet still be transformed by them and do the same thing with the Lord of the Rings. This is what Tolkien was going for. I believe not consciously, unconsciously, as he says in the revision, he understood that he had poured his Christian vision into this. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's because it feels realistic. Yeah. And I make a case for that philosophically in the, in the book. Quick, what are you doing to disciple your kids? Catechids can help. Catechids is a little book with 100 simple questions and answers to help parents teach their young children the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, to lead them to faith in Jesus, and equip them to walk in the Spirit every day and love God. I wrote Catechids for my own kids, and they love it. It's become a tool that's been blessing Christian families and churches far and wide. Get Catechids on Amazon today or by going to thethink.institute. Yeah, and and actually, uh, on Facebook earlier today, you said this is a quote uh, in a in a from a thread that we were both participating in. You said this is a really contentious topic, yeah. but I think I've really opened up new conversations about allegory, and I'm very confident in the direction I've taken this. Michael, yeah. what is that new conversation? What is that new direction? Again, um, I, I've picked up pieces that other scholars have have stated but left unexplained, and my book kind of fills the gap. I, I've taken several uh, good starts to arguments about this, and I feel that my work of scholarship, as I intended to be, is trying to plug that gap using those arguments and to finish it out. And I think what it is is that, yes, The Lord of the Rings is an allegory. It's just not the one you think it is. There are mm. different kinds of allegory, and, it, and I can uh, – just invite you to look at the end notes and read the book and you'll see I have several letters where Tolkien is all over the place in, in talking about it. But in letter 181 in the edited uh, letters by Humphrey Carpenter and letter 131, letter 142, I could think letter 89, there are several off the top of my head where he speaks of one parable versus another. In one, I can't remember the letter precisely, but he says, of course, the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory of atomic power. You know, the stupid World War II things that people were saying, letters from Americans, you know. Uh, but it is an allegory about power and domination. And, mm. and so he says it's a, it's not that kind of allegory. And then uh, one of your, um, your friends on Facebook had posted something about there is no allegorical meaning or topic that it's about. And, yeah, that's true. It, it's not that kind of allegory. And so, it, But it's a different kind of allegory. And so my research has shown me that there is a typology or a, class, a classification uh, genus of allegories, if you will. And um, every scholar I've read has said, it, look, it's not at the end of the day, it's not important what we call these stories, but how they function and what they do to us that matters. But what we could make the case for, and every scholar has their own way of doing this, is that there's a spectrum of allegories and that one lie on the far end of one end of the spectrum is the one Tolkien cordially disliked. He called the conscious and intentional allegory. The real simplistic one for one. Yeah. This is that. And, and it is absolutely and abundantly clear. There's no question. Think of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress or even parts of Milton or Dante and several others that have those clear connections and, and even some sections of the Narnia. And there's no doubt the Pevensey children are called the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And I don't think that makes all of Lewis allegorical. That's another story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there is the fairy story 
which one of his friends connected to the New Testament parable. And then I furthered that research. Now, the fairy story is another type of allegory. And if it's analogous or at least very close to a parable, what we can just simplify all this by saying is this. There's a spectrum of allegory. Conscious and intentional is on one end. Parables on the other, the end. And then the details will follow later. We'll talk about it, I'm sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's so, so that's helpful. And, so you know, sorry. I, yeah, it, yeah, it's a good start. And obviously you argue that this is a Christian story. Um, yes. It is very different from a Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is a cherished story. It, it, mm -hmm. it reminds and, and typifies a lot of what we experience in our Christian journey, mm -hmm. but but the meaning is right there at the surface. Yes. Um, but but Tolkien's works are also even different from like a Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. And I think I think this is where a lot of you know, if Narnia hadn't been written, I wonder if Tolkien had, would have taken so much uh as much flack as he has. Because in in mm -hmm. Narnia, you've got Aslan. Aslan mm -hmm. is Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, okay, and I know, you know, there's no, he's not exactly Jesus, and it's uh what's the word? Um, you talked about it with my brother on his a uh, a supposal. It's a supposal. Yeah. Yes. What if? What if there was this other? Suppose yeah. there was another world, and and there was another savior there. Who you know? What would Jesus be like in this other world? Exactly. But there, when it comes to Lord of the Rings, mm. it the story realm of Lord of the Rings seems to be lacking many of the elements that we might expect in a Christian allegory of any kind, and even even dare I say, even. Uh, a parabolic, a, a parabolic story, yeah. like like yeah. look in in the parables Jesus tells, you've got you know the the king who goes to receive a kingdom. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah, that's Jesus. No, he's not dying in that story and rising again. But Jesus is the king who goes to receive the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But in in Lord of the Rings, and this is where it took me a while to buy into your thesis here, mm -hmm. is because it's like, first of all, you've got Tolkien saying it's not an allegory, and and. In in at, at one point, okay, and then mm. yes, you're right. He says kind of it is an allegory over here, mm. but then but but if this is a Christian allegory or a parable, where's the Christ? Where's Jesus? Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. I think one of the things that's really critical here that we understand is that in letter 142 of that collection of letters, that it's the only collection that exists, uh, that I researched, I got permission to do it and stuff. Um, from the Tolkien estate, I had to go through jump through all the hoops, which was mm. great because I wanted to use them. Uh, and show people this is what he said. Um, I lost my train of thought, but he was he basically says, uh, here it is. He said, I have cut out, deliberately cut out any uh, explicit references to religious and moral truth or something to that extent that I found. The religious element is absorbed into the story. And so this is very key, I think, in understanding what his friend Robert Murray, the Jesuit friend, wrote in Tolkien and the Art of the Parable is that it points it even more to it being a parable is that there is no explicit God talk in most of Jesus's parables. And you have somebody like Bart Ehrman, who I respect as a historian, uh, but disagree with his theology. You know, he says, well, Jesus should have gone around trumpeting that he was God. Well, he did. He just did it parabolically mm -hmm. and avoiding God talk was important. And a uh, parable is important in, in talking about God. So it almost, it's like saying you talk about God by not talking about him. God mm -hmm. loves indirect speech. And so by Tolkien saying he removed some of those elements that he found, he consciously did this because I think he wanted to keep it more in line with the suggestive, implicit, very elusive and gentle, uh, invitational, supposal-like way that mm -hmm. Jesus did because he wanted 
Jesus wanted people to make a decision about who he was. Who do you say that I am? And I think Tolkien wanted you to discover that too and to eventually look to find Christ, but you have to participate. And to do that, you'll rob somebody of participation if you say, now, boys and girls, see this lion? This is Jesus. Okay. Do you understand that? If he spelled it out like that, and I'm not saying Lewis does, that's another podcast maybe, mm -hmm. but if he had done that, he'd rob the participation. And he would it would have been like Jesus just kind of, all right, let's just lay the cards out here. You know, you all know who I am. You know what I'm here to do. Yeah. Uh, and that would have just been, I think, weird. So. Okay. Okay. Now, here, this isn't the official challenge pushback question yet. Okay. <laughs> but but I, yeah. I, I have to know, I have to know your answer to yeah. this. Okay. In the story, and I've heard this not just from you, Michael, but I've heard this from others as well. Mm -hmm. I've heard the reason Jesus told parables. And the reason why parables are so effective is they communicate something that cannot be communicated without a parable. The mm -hmm. parable, the, the method is the message or the medium yes. or the genre. Now, okay, yes. I, I want to I challenge you on that yeah. respectfully because here's why. If the parable itself is the message and it can't be communicated any other way, then why, mm -hmm. A, does Jesus explain the parable, for example, the parable of the soils to his Mm -hmm. uh, disciples. That's one. Mm -hmm. And B, why did you write a book explaining this parable? And, yeah. and if that's the case, um, that a parable can't, the truth of a parable can't be explained any other way, then aren't you sucking some of the marrow or the meaning out of the parable by writing a 300 page yeah. book yeah. on the parable. So, so help us with this. Yeah, I will. I'll try my best. So okay. I, I would say, uh, let me work backwards, starting with the, why I wrote a book, because I mean, fairly Tolkien even said this himself, you know, any uh, attempt to interpret a story is going to use allegorical language and no literature self-interpreting Joel. So I think, uh, it's inevitable that we write books about this. It's inevitable that we extract theology systematically from it because we want to understand after we've enjoyed the stories, and that's critical. We need to do that first and receive it as a story first. And that's how I did this. I didn't start with this and then read the stories. It was the other way around. Mm -hmm. So I think, of course, um, it, it's maybe unfair to say that it does suck all the marrow out. I, I know you're just asking the question. I'm not challenging it. But I'm simply saying that I, I think it's inevitable that one does this because people want to understand what is it about the Lord of the Rings that does communicate that message. And so I had to point it out. Um, and then this leads into the point about Jesus. And I, by the way, I think it's an excellent challenge and question that you've asked. I don't think that Jesus explained all of his parables. I'd have to go and read them again very carefully, but I think in Mark four, he does, but then he also deliberately tells them, quoting Isaiah, the prophet that he is telling parables to deliberately sow miscomprehension or to, to confuse people, meaning that there's something about the mystery of parables that that's really critical to understand. He wasn't which, doing it to be mean or which like yeah. okay yes and that was that was that's sort of like like part two of my question right is right. jesus jesus does sometimes tell parables to the crowds in order to sort of keep them befogged or or mm -hmm. uh you know befuddled yes, um yeah. but then he does explain them to his to his followers Yes. And so how does that factor in? Is Tolkien doing any of that with his parable? Is he intentionally obscuring? Does Tolkien, yes. because Jesus had, and I'm a, a good Calvinist, I believe Jesus, you know, 
it saved his sheep, it called his sheep and, and, and the goats weren't going to get it. And Jesus sometimes made sure the goats wouldn't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but is Tolkien doing something analogous here? Tolkien's obviously not a Calvinist, but, no. uh, is, is he intentionally obscuring something? And, yes. and if so, how does that factor into this idea, this concept that a parable is meant to communicate an idea in an irreducible way in a in a well essential way again i'll quote tolkien in his essay on beowulf remember he was a professor of anglo-saxon literature for those of you who don't know in uh, oxford at oxford totally that comes through in his writing too yeah, yeah it yeah. does um but he says look any attempt to to dissect a myth will kill it but then in his letters he says you can't help but d- dissect a myth because at the end of the day if you're in the audience of jesus and you've got to think about this story uh, uh, in Luke 15 of the prodigal or, or lost son, however you want to translate it. Y- you've got to kind of say, was that about me? Was that about him? Was that about God? Was that about all of them? Was that about Joe and Bob down the street? Was it about Abraham, Isaac, you know, Jacob? Who was it about? It's a, yes is the answer, you know? So I think um, it, it's kind of just one of these consequences of being human is that we have to process it. But I think in doing that, and I'm admitting this, it does, I'm optimistic. I don't think it spoils the magic. Um, I think that people will be able to still enjoy the books after dissecting it like this. I wouldn't even use the word dissection. I would say reflecting on it because we want to understand why and how, and uh, inevitably it's what we must do. But back to the point about the the genre is the content. N.T. Wright has said this several times in his books, and I think it's very important. And I think that's why we need to receive it first as a myth. Lewis says in his Myth Became Fact essay, you know, you must receive the myth concretely because myth is a concrete experience. We have to get into the story. And yeah, any attempt to make sense of it is going to allegorize it. And it's we're kind of doomed to do it. But at, at the very best, when you hear the story, you're encountering the Son of God. You're experiencing an encounter with Jesus. And rather than Jesus just go around trumpeting his identity, he referred to himself obliquely. He wasn't self-referential. But no, no doubt about it, I think these parables are ultimately, but not exclusively about him, um, and I think we still need to come back to the idea that, yeah, that the parable is the message, but that we're doomed when we go to interpret it to, you know, maybe uh, overinterpret it. And so we have to be careful. And I, I try to steer my readers in the book about ways you can do this. And I'm confident that some people will figure it out. Uh, and um, maybe it's a book for people who have already wondered like I have and read the books and then want to know why it has affected them so. Um, yeah. but there it is. I mean, that's the best I can do, but I think those are some great things for further conversation. There is one last thing I wanted to say on it, and this will be a segue if I could, uh, Please, into yeah. some other things. Um, you know, we need to understand, uh, you know, a lot of scholars interpret metaphor as substitutionary. That is the substitutionary definition of metaphor is that it's this for that. And it's one way of just saying something literal. That's not what a metaphor is. A metaphor should be properly understood by the way. I think that definition has materialistic assumptions. This is all there is. And so it's really just another way of saying something in this real world. A a metaphor properly understood, I've learned, is saying one thing in terms that is suggestive of another. Okay, and this is different from the allegorical mode we'll talk about. But now if we understand that properly, um, there's mystery there. Okay, Jesus, many scholars have said, is a giant metaphor, the incarnation. What is stranger than the wedding of God and man. And I'm speaking metaphorically here, you know, obviously the combat, what is stranger than, than God becoming a man? And yet what was 
uh, also something in plain sight if you know how to read the scriptures. And it's this wonderful revelation. Um, but when we consider that the incarnation is the greatest metaphor, consider that Jesus is God's parable and that the the God's parable came speaking in parables because God speaks in a way that is accommodated to us to get across who he is. And he knows that we won't be able to understand and think like he does because we're not God. There's a mm. sharp distinction. And so I think that he knew this and, and spoke in parables for that reason to disclose who he was. Yeah. So, no, that, that's, I, I got to say, you know, I appreciate the way that you explain that. And mm. right now I'm the closest I've ever been to being convinced of that, of that point. If I can say that. that that's uh, great. Yeah. I'm happy I, to share. Well, it's, you know what? It's, it's a little bit like this. Okay. If I, let's say I'm watching a TV show. One of these uh, binge-worthy, you know, streaming shows. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, I'll leave it to your imagination as to which one. Mm -hmm. And I, I, there will be times when I will get to a point in a show where a lot of these shows start out nice and then they get progressively darker. Mm -hmm. And there are some shows where they're so dark that I, I, I can't see any light or benefit in them anymore. So I, I will make the decision I'm not going to watch this show anymore. But then what happens is I'm engaged, I'm invested in these characters, so I have to know what happens. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I will sometimes look up on Wikipedia or IMDb, and I will look up the plot to find out what's happening five or six episodes later and what result and what, what the resolution is to that particular uh, you know storyline. And mm -hmm. I have to say, it's, it's interesting, because while it will satisfy my curiosity, there mm -hmm. is no comparison between re reading a Wikipedia article about the plot Mm -hmm. and 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 experiencing the story before my eyes or or exactly. as it were you know on the page exactly. and so uh just a quick yep. comment here from miguel benitez jr watching on yeah. youtube he says perhaps a distinction can be made between talking about the message and the message itself this mm. would allow one to talk about the parable even preach on the parable without claiming to be equal Yes. So would you, do you like his explanation there? I, I do. I think Miguel's a friend and uh, thank you, Miguel. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And there's no substitution for, and you're saying this too, experiencing the myth concretely. It, it, when you start to talk about it and talk about it, you're going to spoil some of the enchantment, but we inev inevitably have to. But the yeah. best experience, if we're comparing the two, uh, using your excellent example too, is, is just to experience the story rather than look it up or, or, you know, kind of, uh, or, or uh, read my book, you know? So I think I should say, I don't think that we've dissected anything here. I think we've reflected, this is my meditation on my journey. And it's my meditation on how this book has affected me after I've read it for years and years and years. And I think that's the best time to read a book like mine. But I think if you are mature spiritually enough, and, and if you can, uh, if you just have a leap of faith, I, I hate to use that phrase here. I'm using it incorrectly, but um, just to read the book and then read Tolkien's books, I still think you'll benefit because I guarantee you, you will not fathom all, all the, uh, all, all, all that Lord of the Rings has to offer. Even after reading my book, I have yeah. barely scratched the surface. So I'm confident. I'm optimistic on that. I know we want to move on to other things, but yeah, that oh, was awesome. Good. Great, great comment and great example from, from both of you. Yeah, that's, I appreciate that. Okay. So, yeah. so uh, there is, one more, this is a, a little bit of a side trail. So mm -hmm. maybe we can address it quick and you tell me if we can't address it quick because there's okay. some other other things we need to get to. But there's yes. one point I want some clarification on. So sure. on page 217 of your book, mm 
Yeah. Um, you 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 make this comment. So it's a brief comment, and you say that after the Lord of the Rings saga has completed, and this is in between the end of the Return of the King and now moving toward the unfinished work, the New Shadow. Mm-hmm. You say because it seems a little counterintuitive the fact that there's been a resolution to the story, but then there's a new work called the new shadow. And a lot of people don't even know that there was a book called or an unfinished work called the new shadow. I didn't know that until I read your book, Yeah, yeah. but, but the persistence of evil, hmm. the fact that evil hasn't been done away with makes hmm. one question, how, just how Christian this work could be. Now here's my yeah. question for you. Hmm. You said that the, the persistence of evil quote, does not at all prove the absence of the incarnation in the Lord of the Rings. In fact, all this evidence only points more to the presence of the incarnation and goes to show how deeply Christian Tolkien's mythology really is, end quote. Yes. Can you unpack that idea for us here just for a minute? Sure. So just real quick, The New Shadow is in volume 12. I'm just looking on my bookshelf. The History of Middle-Earth series edited by Chris Tolkien. It's The Peoples of Middle-Earth. It's an unfinished sequel he wrote. It's set 100 years after The Return of the King and Aragorn's death. Uh, I say death because Tolkien never refers to it, that he dies. Um, and it's uh, people are bored with peace. They're sick and tired of you know hearing about the War of the Ring. They're sick and tired of Frodo. They're sick and tired of hearing about all that. They're playing orc games and they're into cults. And I say, you know, look, this is this is life as we know it. Look at what's going on with wokeism right now, right? And we have, we have a lot of cults yeah. out there, and we have a lot of uh, orc games, as Tolkien kind of puts it. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just a description of the way the world is sitting between the already and not yet Christian story. So that's what I mean here. And I want to quote Timothy Keller because his uh, proverb devotional mm-hmm. I wake up with every day. And I read this, and I, I've read it, and I've read it again and again. And it has helped me to understand why the Lord of the Rings is enduringly sad. And he says this, there is a tragedy and a sadness to life from which no amount of celebration or rejoicing can provide a full escape. Some wounds never really heal. Now that's Keller drawing on Middle Earth anyway, because he loves the books. The festal joy that Jesus brings is always partial in this life, never full. This is God's wisdom for everyday life. It's a Proverbs devotional wisdom Mm -hmm. literature. This is what I'm getting at. Many Tolkien scholars have said, the Lord of the Rings is sad. I'll tell you why it's sad. It's because there's no Jesus. If mm. Jesus was in there, everything would be happy. And I'm thinking, really? We can do better than that. Okay. Yes, things are happy, but but we're not whistling in the dark here. But we are um, we are still suffering. There is still the persistence of evil. And so I think it's a very good Christian theological response to say Tolkien was um, just characterizing the world as we know it between those two moments. And this is good theology. I don't think it's evidence that there's no incarnation. I just think it's that we've misunderstood how Jesus is present in Middle Earth, uh, which is parabolically. And so I think uh, Tolkien scholars have just gone in the wrong direction. They've said it's sad because Jesus isn't in there, but that's a misunderstanding of what our faith teaches, I think. Okay, so, so. I, I get how it's not I, – I believe I understand – how it's not evidence for no incarnation, but yeah. how is the persistence of evil in Arda or Middle Earth mm-hmm. evidence for the incarnation? Can you now? I, I understand it's it's correspondent, but not uh, simply yeah. metaphorical. But but um, in in what way does that show that um, you know that that there is 
the theme of incarnation in in well, the Middle Earth. Now this is going to take us down a, a biblical rabbit hole, but okay. my interpretation, which I really don't. Uh, want to get into it too much, but John Walton's interpretation of the Genesis story, even Mike Heiser's, you know, they're kind of different, but, oh, sure. and then first Corinthians 15, Paul, you know, talking about Jesus has to keep on reigning until death is put under his feet and all enemies. Okay. And uh, the last enemy to be defeated is death. I, what I guess I, I should have worded this better. I don't mean that the evil is proof. I just mean that this is evidence that it's a reflection of the way the world really is even after the advent of christ yeah. is that even though we we have this hope and i'm suggesting that in middle earth we have the hope through the return of the king and that that's the same in our world okay. is that the king has returned he is setting things right and there's some really wonderful stuff at the end of the return of the king that drives us home aragorn is coronated he gets married to arwen he discovers a tree sapling that used to be in uh heaven tolkien's yeah. version of heaven which was on earth once upon a time, like Eden, the mountain and garden of God. So if you put all these things together, I think it's very clear that the return of the king means God is present and he is sitting enthroned, but he has to keep on reigning, as Paul says. Yeah. So I think the evil doesn't show that you know God is real or that it that it maybe I worded it wrong, but I think does that make more sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Okay. No, that, that makes Good. a lot of sense. That that verse that you brought in about Jesus reigning until all the enemies are yes. placed under his feet. That is the reality in which we live today. Precisely. And, and look around. There's plenty of evil. There's plenty of suffering. And yet there's hope in the midst of that suffering. Exactly. And are, you, are you saying that's exactly. what's going on in Middle Earth after I mean, yes. After that saga? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. No, that's that's, yep. that's super helpful. Thanks for explaining that. Oh, my um, pleasure. Okay. So um, right now, I'd like to move into some of the the, the tough questions. Mm -hmm. um, one is coming. We've we've got a lot of comments on the uh, on YouTube and Facebook coming in. Awesome. Um, we've also got uh, there's this article from GotQuestions.org, and mm -hmm. I actually had Shane, who runs Got Questions, on the podcast. I don't know several months ago. It was a great great conversation, mm -hmm. but he he has an article and I don't know if he wrote it or somebody else, but he has an article that expressly says Lord of the Rings is not a Christian story for a lot of the reasons why we've sort of why that you've already addressed. Well, there's no, um, you, you know, there's, there's, there are, it's lacking certain elements. I think he's looking more for like a Chronicles of Narnia kind of allegory, mm -hmm. but, but um, there is one point from his article that I wanted to bring up. Sure. Okay. And that's this for, a, for um, a story. This is the point that they make on got questions for a story to be truly Christian. There ought to be some kind of redemption where an evil character, sinful character is converted, changed, born again, regenerated and becomes good. And you don't, see that this is the point they're making you don't see that in lord of the rings you know there isn't uh you know um sauron doesn't see the error of his ways and you know return uh mm. so so what do you think did tolkien miss something here could he have made mm. his story more um and i won't tell tolkien you said this okay whatever your answer <laughs> um yeah. what do you think about that well, to answer this question, we and I read the article uh, pretty thoroughly today, and and I've heard it before in many books by uh, uh, by other authors on Tolkien and his books. 
the first thing we have to understand is that this is based on a misunderstanding of not theology, but just about what kind of literature this is, I think, and how language works. Okay. So remember we talked about the spectrum of allegory and I reduced it to the conscious and intentional that he disliked and the mm-hmm. fairy story slash parable on the other side. Okay. Well, um, let's talk about these, uh, these opposite ends of the spectrum. Okay. So what is it about the one that Tolkien disliked that everybody always says it's not that kind? Okay. Well, the conscious and intentional allegory, although he doesn't say this, other scholars who have written about it have, uh, has the allegorical mode. Now, I'm not talking about the genre. Okay, we know the genre already. We're working within the genre of allegories. Allegorical mode is the way language is used in context. And allegorical mode is actually not indirect language. Some scholars have argued it's more direct. It's very transparent. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, the light is sharp and clear. It does not fall through stained glass. That's a great way to put it. It's okay. You know exactly what you're getting here. It's one for one. And it's dominated by this mode so much so that the entire composition is like this. And in his essay on Beowulf, um, Tolkien says, look, just because you have allegorical mode present in an allegory or in a story of any kind doesn't mean that the whole thing will be allegorical. So that's something else we need to keep in mind when we talk about the other end of the spectrum. But the reason why he didn't like that one is because it is dominated so much by the allegorical mode that you start going through parallel mania, as one biblical scholar has called it. Uh-huh. And, oh, Aragorn is Jesus, and you start to see equations, and you start making them. Right. And, and that's not, of course, what's going on here. Okay. On the other end, the fairy story slash parable, and I, I regret that we won't have time to connect those two, but I, I talk about in my book how mm-hmm. Tolkien's description of fairy story is analogous to or, or close using research from his own friend uh, to parables. But on this end, you have less allegorical mode. It is a type of allegory, yes, technically, because it's one thing that speaks of another. That's what all allegory is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even metaphor to a certain extent, and even parable to a certain extent, okay? So it's got less allegorical mode. That is, it's less direct, it's less clear, it's more dominated by the metaphorical mode, which we defined earlier properly, not as a substitutionary understanding of metaphor, but metaphor is saying one thing in terms that are suggestive of another. Mm -hmm. And so we have the parable dominated by a metaphorical mode where the types in both stories are reminding us of each other suggestively and the allegorical correspondence between, let's say, types in the Bible and types in in Tolkien's books are, they break down. You're like, okay, well, Thorin really does remind me of King David, but he doesn't, but he also reminds me of Josiah and also Judas Maccabee uh, Judah Maccabee, and yet none of these people, and it's not the same. And well, there are two kingdoms. One one falls first, and then the other one. That reminds me of after Solomon with King Rehoboam and all that. And so you start thinking, but then the correspondences start to break down, and you realize, okay, but it's not about the Bible, okay. And that's what a good parable does. Is at a certain point, the author is so good at telling the story, dominated by a metaphorical mode, yeah. which is what this is the DNA of what's going on. I think um, you're so like trying to make these correspondences, but the author somehow takes it off the table and, and and breaks down. And you're like, well, I thought this was about the old Testament, but maybe it's not. Okay. So then on to his understanding, I think if we go into the Lord of the Rings, looking for a salvific figure, we're going to, we're not going to find him. And I think that it's the same thing. Jesus doesn't come around trumpeting salvation. He prefers to speak of it in parables. Now there are places in the gospels. Yes when he's not speaking in parables where he's clear and that's another conversation for another time. But I think we need to understand that we don't need to have an exact dying and rising Messiah in middle earth. And of course, here's the main reason 
that would make it the kind of allegory he didn't want. So what I'm suggesting is that he can still have it be about salvation. And I do think that Frodo, in a sense, is saved as he sails off to the Undying Lands. I do think he failed, yes. Um, I think that people were healed by Aragorn's hands, for those of you that don't know. So there is redemption and healing. And anyway, we get in deep to this. So I think there's evidence of salvation, but then we have to get into what does it mean to be saved? And I talk a little bit about that in my book. So we get into that as well. So there's a lot of questions here. What does it mean to be saved? Are we saved to and for something? Or are we saved from, or is it a combination? And you know, do we see it in Middle Earth? I think yes. And look at Aragorn going through the paths of the dead. He descends into death, he conquers death, he commands death, and he puts death to work for him. And then he forgives them and they're they're free. So I think you have it there. And Aragorn lays down his life, and there's a hint. Can you that he's can you repeat that? You said uh yeah. who's forgiven and set free? Well, so the uh men that betrayed Aragorn's ancestor, Isildur, uh are these men. Uh, lost you. You're frozen right now. Um, okay, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to fill in some of this gap here. But uh, we are on with Michael J. Jahaski. We're talking about the Lord of the Rings, and we're talking about how the there's criticism of the story that not fully Christian because it's lacking certain elements. And Michael is. Um, revealing for us, explaining for us how the story, although it it seems to be, um, it seems to be lacking some of these these um, elements, but in reality they're there. They're just there in a different sort of way, and maybe some of the emphases are a little bit different. So, Michael, if you can, um, okay. So, Michael has just logged out. I think he's. Uh, Lord willing, he's going to log back in. Otherwise, you're going to just hear me talking about the Lord of the Rings. But listen. As, as exciting as that might be, I didn't write the book on it. Uh, Michael Jahaski did. So some other remaining questions that I have for Michael is um, would would be like when it comes to the worldview of J.R.R. Tolkien and and how he um, oh good okay he's back all right good 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 here we go he's back. Hey, you know what? Hey, I did this. I did this on purpose to prove that you know I died yeah. and then I'm back. Right? It's the return of the Jahaski. It, it is. Look at it's that. The good news of the return. <laughs> the return of the author. This is it. Oh, see, Brilliant. that was a perfectly timed. So thanks for covering for me. My internet uh, crapped out on me, so apologies yeah. for that, guys. All good. You so, know what? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No, please no, finish the thought, and then um, I want to. I want to get to uh, a few of these other uh, questions. But, but yes, I, you, so you stopped mid sentence. So yeah. Yeah. So clearly, um, the dying and rising of the Messiah is not literal, and if it were, it would be the wrong kind of allegory. So mm. I'm suggesting it's there, but in a parabolic way. That truth about uh, these elements of the Christian story are reflected in a different way, and that's what we would expect from the kind of allegory that the Lord of the Rings is, not the kind that Tolkien disliked. So of okay. course the allegorical correspondences break down and that's to keep you guessing. And it's also one last thing, metaphorical mode is to, to expand your knowledge. And at one point in the book, I talk about how this is an extension of the Christian story. And that's what his son said, Tolkien's son. And what he meant by that, I think is that because sometimes as soon as he reveals a connection to the biblical story, he takes it away because he wants to open up your understanding of what yeah. the Christian vision is all about. And so if he made it, 
a one for one, it would tell you a story you already knew. You know, so, that is one of the most effective. And if I'm completely honest, one of the most frustrating things about a parable yeah. is we want to draw these one-to-one connections. And the yeah. immediate example that I think of, Michael, is the parable of the soils. So yes. in the parable of the soils, Jesus is talking about the gospel that is sown is um, is is like a seed and it, it plants in the soil. And it's like, okay, so I got it. So the gospel is the seed and then the soil is people. Okay, right. fine. But then the, the seed germinates and begins to grow. And then suddenly the seed is not the gospel anymore. The seed mm-hmm. is the Christian, like the baby Christian who's sort of growing and getting ready to bear fruit. And, and it's like, wait a minute. I thought the seed was words and a message, but now you're telling me it's a per- words and a message don't grow. Right. And now you're telling me that it's, you know, so, so is soil the person? Is it, are we supposed to be good soil or is this just communicating something that's, that's allegorical, that's parabolic. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's communicative, but it's not a one-to-one simple allegory. And so exactly, that, exactly. I, I'm getting a strong that's, parable of the seeds, parable of the soils. You're, you're getting it. Your, your, you're your writing. You're also understanding the difference in the shift. Okay, what what another feature that makes a parable and fairy story great is that shift mm-hmm. between the realms, if you will, and the shift between um, uh, what I, I guess I mean to say here for now is the allegorical to the metaphorical mode, to the clear to the to the suggestive, okay. and that's what makes it such a tantalizing story. So with the parable of the sower, it's it's all of those things. And Jewish thought has always been at home with paradox and. Uh, with a both and kind of understanding of, of that. So I think that's all accurate there. So I know we want to move on. So I'll, I'll stop there. Man, we could talk about this all day. We really we could. could. We could. Um, okay. The one question that I've got to, I've got to ask you, I wanted to ask you about NT, right? Um, yeah, my, yeah. my, my cards on the table. Well, I'm not going to put my cards on the table, but I will, Sorry. but I wanted to ask you about Michael Heiser. Yeah. And here's yeah. why. So I had Dr. Heiser on, on this program incredible conversation mm-hmm. it continues to be the most watched video uh that, that we've done fantastic discussion i'm i am uh, uh i endorse his work i think it's fantastic but here's the the question i wanted to ask you you start out the book talking i think very very well explaining very clearly how everything you just said is true mm-hmm. the 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 story that Tolkien is weaving is not a one-to-one simplistic metaphor, okay? Mm-hmm. So there's going to be elements scattered throughout the story from the Bible into Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. But then when you get to talking about Iluvatar, mm-hmm. did I pronounce that correct? You did, yep. Iluvatar, mm-hmm. who is sort of the stand-in for Yahweh. Yes, and you exactly. start to talk about his divine counsel yes. at this point. Now I recognize and you made it explicit, but even if you hadn't, I would have recognized the, cool. the connections to Dr. Heiser and his mm-hmm. work. But it seems to me, if I understand you correctly, Michael, you are saying something along the lines of Tolkien subscribe to something like the divine counsel worldview of Michael Heiser, where mm-hmm. you've got Yahweh, but then Yahweh has his, who is, you know, the Lord, the God of the Bible, has mm-hmm. his divine counsel, as you call it, his heavenly, or his divine family, his heavenly family, yeah. and his earthly yeah. family, yeah. Um, would be human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, m- my question, and I'll, I'll just cut to the chase. Yeah. Um, doesn't, it seems like 
sometimes, how about this? How are you not reading backward into Tolkien's thought, an mm -hmm. idea that didn't arise until 70 years after Tolkien? Sure. Who would have sure. written those books? Like, are we really to think that Tolkien subscribed to something like no. Heiser's work? No, of course not. But I think that Heiser's work is not new in that sense, in one sense, in that if you take a ancient Israelite point of view and read the scripture uh, properly in its own historical, theological, uh, literary contexts, those concentric circles in which we read scripture, and then there's more we'd add to that. I think that anyone who has knowledge of scripture and is guided by the Holy Spirit would be able to come to those conclusions faithfully. And so I think that Tolkien was aware of that. And I also think this is true because the other explanations for the Ainur, the Valar and the Maiar, these uh, uh, divine council beings in Middle Earth is insufficient. I don't think it's a reference to the Trinity. It wouldn't make sense anyway. That's one argument. I don't think it's a reference to Jewish elders or, or, or human beings in Middle Earth is what we would say. Mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, they're not archangels and angels, although that's close, I think, because with Heiser's work, what he's pointed out, which has been in plain sight all along, and I think that anybody could have figured it out in the mid-20th century if they opened their Bible and knew certain things like languages and history and theology like Tolkien did, um, I think he would have come to the conclusion these aren't angels so much necessarily or archangels, uh, which I think also Catholicism gets wrong. I think that this is the divine council. You and, and, and Tolkien knew his Bible. He must have known about Psalm 82. Um, he knew Hebrew to a certain extent. I think he worked uh, translating the book of Jonah. Um, so he was familiar with that and creating the story and the language of the dwarves who he thought of like the Jews, he says explicitly in his letters. So I think, um, I think it's interesting. I, I think on one sense, you know, Heiser's work is not new. And so Tolkien could have known about it for the reasons that I've stated. But the, the other thing I would say is how I break into the more clear one for one correspondences. I know those were the, the, the other part of the question. Well, I, of course I do this because my whole argument is that a parable shifts between the modes. There are going to be points in the story where the exile and return types are very clear and parts where they're not. There's going to be the two kingdoms, one falls and is sacked. We think of Assyria. You know, we see that in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and Silmarillion, but it's not the same. So it goes back and forth. And I think the Silmarillion is really clear on the cosmogony, the creation myth of, of the Bible. It's very uh, parallel to that. I wouldn't say derivative. And the Divine Council stuff, I think it it, it fits. And Louis Marcos, um, Louis Marcos, excuse me, has already uh, written a review of Heiser's book into integrating this. And I think other scholars are picking up on it. That's so he, yeah, again, he connects it's, Tolkien yeah. with Heiser. Yeah. So L Lewis Marcos wrote a review of the unseen realm. One of Heiser's books, which okay. is yeah. one of my favorites. That's, that's yeah. That's the big one. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, yeah, it's a real, real big book. I did a Bible study on that with some folks. It took a long time. So mm. the, um, uh, the point I was making is that in his review of that book, he mentions the Silmarillion and he, and he mm. picks up on some of the stuff. And he's also been on that podcast with Heiser. Like I have been uh, where he's talked about, uh, among other things, Milton, uh, Paradise Lost and other things, but he's talked about the Unseen Realm and Tolkien sort of stuff. So I wonder what he's, I haven't listened to him yet. I, I wonder what he said about this. Hmm. But um, again, the allegorical correspondences, Iluvatar, Yahweh, Divine Council, the Valar and Maiar, yeah, I think those are the clear connections. But then Tolkien takes those away and there are less clear connections. Okay. So it goes back and forth. So that yeah. is very helpful. Um, Good. Because that was one of the, the questions that I had was at the beginning yeah. of the book, you're saying, look, it's a parable. We shouldn't expect one to one. But then you're yeah. talking about the Iluvatar, uh, the, uh, 
the the Valar, and it's like, well, that sounds a lot like you know, is yeah. is Jahaski, uh, you know, contradicting, contradicting himself or what's yeah. going on? But no, that's that's incredibly helpful. So thank you. Good, my pleasure. Um, okay, good. Again, we could talk about it all day, but I got to get to some of these comments. Are you good to take a few comments? I'm good. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go. Okay, okay. Here we go. Let me let me. Um, Okay, now this this one's coming from earlier. This is from that earlier Facebook thread. And I don't know if he's mm -hmm. watching right now, uh, but this is from, okay, it's blocking our faces. If you're watching on the video, <laughs> uh, this is a, a, a slight reprieve from, <laughs> yeah, from having a, there we go. Uh, so Andy Kumar writes this. Now he was talking about, he said that, um, I, 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 I asked the question, is, and this was total clickbait, and people, some people recognized <laughs> it, but I said, is Lord of the Rings, Christian. And Andy Kumar said it's allegorical, but it's not Christian. Here's what he says. And I said, okay, what is it allegorical for? And he says, I withdraw my statement that it is allegorical because of this. Quote, as this is a quote from Tolkien, mm -hmm. as for any inner meaning or quote message, end quote, it has in the intention of the author, none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence, J.R.R. Mm -hmm. Tolkien. And this is in the foreword to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings. I know yes, you know about this. You addressed it oh, often. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but now what, what Andy Kumar continues on, he says this. He says um, that he stands by his statement that it is not Christian, but he withdraws his statement that it is allegorical. He says it's more Catholic, which is heretical. So I'm going to just drop this Easter egg on you and, yeah. and, and let you respond. Okay. So I started to on Facebook to him is an excellent point, but it, you have, as I told him, you have to take this uh, in, like we take scripture with scripture uh, analogous to that. We have to take Tolkien with Tolkien. He contradicts himself in many other places, uh, although he, he really isn't. We think that he is, but he's using allegorical. Uh, he's sometimes using allegory as a mode. Sometimes he's referring to allegory as a composition Sometimes he's referring to one type of allegory and, and not to another because of the uh, ways in which and the context in which he speaks about this subject. So here what he's saying, I think, is that it's not just about the Bible. It's about what the Bible is about. It's about reality itself. It, it is mysterious. The Christian story still has much to teach us. There's so much to learn here. You can come back to this world again and again. And it also has, and I address this in my book, other religious influences because Christianity is the myth made fact. There are other religions Tolkien wants to show Christianity is fulfilling. Mm. So I think that's another important element to take in here. That's the reason why people correctly point out there are other religious and philosophical influences or mythological influence because they're there. And they're there deliberately to show that it's more Christian, to show that it is the true myth. So let me set that aside and address the rest of it. What he's saying is that it's not just about you know, one for one correspondences. And here I think he's taking issue with the conscious and intentional allegory as an overall composition where all of its parts are dominated by the allegorical mode. And all of what you read here in the Lord of the Rings is just a sermon of what's already in the Bible. That's what he's taking issue of. Right. Or that it's uh, about World War II or about both. It's about these things and more. And it's also not about these things. It's the yes and no. It's the parabolic way and the indirect, maddeningly indirect way, circuitous way of talking about um, the the biblical vision. So there, I think there's no contradiction, but it's a good one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, um, thank you for that. We've got another comment now. Uh, let's see. This is 
This is from, uh, here we go. Oh, this is just a comment from uh, Alicio Trejo. Mm. He says, there's now this is some of these comments are going back to the beginning of our conversation yeah, but he says yeah. there's definitely a touch of ezekiel and the dry bones with aragon aragorn in the cave do you see that yeah, that's that's a good one yeah i didn't i didn't see that mm. he's right um yeah he you know he says son of man speak these bones to come to life something to that extent in ezekiel and that's exactly what aragorn does he he commands their allegiance and they work for him and and then he forgives them. He redeems them, maybe, but not in a strict allegorical sense. Um, he he's setting them free from their oath that they broke long ago. And yeah, I think he's right. I I wish he had uh, told me that, man, like six months ago. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, I'm just I'm kidding, of course. Yeah, it's a good one. There's always you know there now you, you got go. your sequel. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, good one. Yep. Yeah. No. Very very good. Um, Joel. By the way, Joel Donahue, great first name. Give your yeah. compliments to my parents. Are there any biblical themes in the Silmarillion? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's so many. I mean, I, I, the way I say in Chapter 5, and keep in mind, I take a retrospective journey from the, the unfinished sequel of The Lord of the Rings all the way back from The Return of the King. And we look back, like Jesus invites us to do with Scripture from Luke 24, all the way back to the Silmarillion. And when once we get there we see themes of creation and fall dominate. Uh, there's a story about the elves in the Silmarillion. And again, it's not a one for one at all. It is so not a one for one, but there's a kin slang where one tribe of elves kills another. One is going to think of Cain and Abel. Sure. Uh, but you're going to also think of several other examples of violence in the Bible and, and kin slang just in general and Greek tragedy, for example, Absalom and um, Amnon. I mean, it's all throughout. There you go. Exactly. Um, but that that's just a, a good one to, to bring up there. You have, um, you know, the two trees uh, in Eden. You have two trees in Valinor. Valinor is like the heaven on earth in Tolkien's universe, which the earth was flat originally. And then uh, Iluvatar after, I think he sinks Numenor later in the second age or the end of the first age. I'd have to double check my chronology. The world becomes uh, spherical and, and Valinor disappears, just like Eden kind of has receded from view. Mm. So, there, yeah, there's so much. The creation myth is probably the, the the dead ringer. I mean, God is singing. We think of the book of Job, you know, the morning star sang when, when God created the world. And so we could go on and on. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot. Read read chapter five of my book for sure. Yeah. Um, endorsed. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> so Dr. Strange on YouTube. What? He says this. Yeah. He says, Lord of the Rings has a pantheon of gods including Sauron, and Gandalf is a semi-divine figure. Now, this is right. not so much a question. Now, yeah. this this actually, first, okay, so I, I, please respond to that. But then also, does this tie into what you were saying earlier about the divine council? Could Tolkien have been drawing not so much on scripture, but on some of like, you know, these, well, uh, any polytheistic religion, the Norse pantheon or the the roman pantheon could mm -hmm. could he have been drawing more on that and could in the valar could we be seeing more of a a council of 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 gods i mean i know you're blurring the lines here right because yeah some of those gods are um, the divine council but what are your thoughts i think that the biblical story you know lewis pointed out a long time ago in uh i think his theology poetry one of his essays about we should expect to find in the minds in, uh, of pagan myth makers and poets 
uh, glimpses of that theme of, of the story of reality, right? And so I think Tolkien is definitely drawing on pagan mythology. And yes, he's right. These are all divine figures. Doctor Strange, I love your name, by the way, um, is right on the nose. But I, do I think he's drawing more on that? No, I think he's showing how those are not incompatible with the henotheistic, which is still strictly monotheistic vision of the Bible, which is that God, there is no perfect being except God. There, God is God, but he has other divine beings that are in possession of free will and are less than perfect and can fall and, and that are spiritual beings um, that are part of the divine council and and yet they're divine beings. And so that that corresponds with Heiser's research and Gandalf is a divine being when he's fighting the Balrog and Moria, spoiler alert. Um, yeah, he's fighting his rival on the Divine Council, but they're junior figures, just mm. FYI. Sauron is also a junior Maiar. That's why in the Hobbit films, a really cool scene when Gandalf, I think this is in the extended edition, is fighting this light and shadow battle with Sauron. It's two equals mm. going at it on the Divine Council. And we think of uh, the scene from Job with God calling the Divine Council. And, you know, it, it, it just, yeah, we get fireworks here. Um you know, so yes, uh, whereas the first Dark Lord is a, a, a senior. That's deity. Melkor? Um, that's right. Or Morgoth, as the elves call him. And it's basically just bad guy, dark yeah. foe of the world. Yeah. That's and, Satan, um, essentially, correct? No, yeah, basically, I think it is. I, I, I think, you know, you have to read Heiser's Demon's book where he sure. gets really into demonology yeah. for more. But yeah. yeah, more or less, he is okay. the big bad guy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, very helpful. All right. Let's mm -hmm. see. I'm. Uh, we got a lot of comments. We can't get to all of them. But, Great. Glad um, to hear it, though. Yeah. But but listen. If you're if you're watching this on Facebook, read the comments. Uh, Alicio Trejo is really he's going hard here with a lot of uh, some good theological comments. But uh, let's take one from Nate Werner. Awesome. <laughs> he says. Uh, Nate, Nate, Nate likes to tread that line between, um, insightful commentator and troll a little, a little bit. He's usually, he's on the insightful side. Okay. He's on the right side of history here, yeah. but he says, Nate, Nate Warner says, question, who's your favorite LOTR character and why is it Gimli? Yes, it's Gimli. Um, so yeah, no, it's Aragorn, but I, I love Gimli because I love Thorin and I love the connection. You know, Gimli's father, Gloin, uh, was part of Thorin, Oakenshield, and the Hobbit's campaign to reclaim the uh, the Lonely Mountain, Erebor. Gimli, Gimli is a dwarf. Yeah, he's a and, dwarf and he's a badass, uh, pardon my language, uh, but he, he, he really is. He's um, He is, and the actor who portrays him in the films is great. Um, but his his history and his uh, gravitas, let me be more serious, I think is why I love him. And when the, the Fellowship is in Moria, he breaks into song, the Song of Durin, about his ancient people's song. And it reminds us of, I think, the biblical prophecies of Return of the King, but that he's not back yet. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's got a lot of those themes we've been talking about. And I love how he's always got like a pithy saying in the books. There's always some proverb Gimli has and he kind of spars with Aragorn and they go back and forth with uh, Proverbs. So I love him. Uh, and I, I love the way he phrased this, of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've just, I just started reading the Hobbit with my family. Yeah. And, said um, yeah. And uh, so we're, we're still learning who all the characters are and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I mean, I haven't read the Hobbits. I mean, my dad read it to me when I was a kid nice. and um, you know, we were partially inspired by, your book so thank you um so I'm we're with that 
Yeah, no, we're we're having a blast. So Gimli and and uh, Balin and Dwalin and all all the the dwarves those are those are fun characters, mm-hmm. and um, you know my kids are having a hard time figuring out. So Gandalf, who's Gandalf again? Oh, he's mm-hmm. the tall wizard. Okay, and and who's Bilbo? Bilbo's he's the one whose house it is. Okay, and he's. Yeah. He's a he's a Baggins, but he's got a little took in him, and and the took is the adventure side. Oh, okay. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Out of the mouth of babes, we love. That's right. That. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay, so so we've got now now this is this next comment was mm-hmm. actually made by Elizio Trejo and Joel Donahue, and okay. that is Michael when we were talking about repentance and being born again, Elisio points out that Boromir repented and Joel points out that Boromir slash Faramir both kind of redeem themselves. Do you agree with that? I would. I am going through my trek a little late this year, reading the Lord of the Rings for obvious reasons. I just finished my book and I'm kind of uh, getting back into just reading the book now for pleasure. I've got to go look at the Faramir aspect of things because I forget what he's done to, to, to deserve redemption. But yeah, I would agree with Boromir in the books and in the movies, especially beautiful scene. And it's very similar um, in some ways. Again, the details are where it matters. But yeah, I would say Boromir uh, is redeemed. And even in The Hobbit, when Thorin dies, spoiler alert, sorry, you know, he's on his deathbed and he says he goes to the halls of waiting to, to sit beside his fathers until the world is renewed. He knows the world is going to be renewed. This goes back to a prophecy in a lesser known story called The Debate of Finrod and Andreth, which you'll read about in my book. And so there's some really good stuff. And that gets into purgatory and the various ways we understand it, salvation, redemption. And so you could even cite uh, Thorin because he doesn't do such a good job. And then, and then before he dies, he, he does. So you could add a third character to that. So yeah, Boromir, Thorin are clearer to me. I don't remember about Faramir, but I'll take your word for it. Okay. So yeah. Amen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Nate Werner also points out that Aragorn is the healer King. Yeah. And, uh, and you, you brought this up as well earlier. Yes. Uh, he says he loves how he sneaks into minus, uh, minus Tirith to heal mm-hmm. Faramir and Eowyn. So uh, that's, um, Good point. By the way, yeah, I think uh, Nate's picture there is a, it looks like a sketch from Da Vinci's notebooks. I, I'd recognize them anywhere. It looks great. I don't know mm. if he can confirm that, but anyway, I was going to comment on that. Okay. Let us know if it is. Yeah, go on. Joel Donahue says he's curious about your take about why Gandalf is the one who, quote, dies and is resurrected instead of. Aragorn, if Aragorn is the king, yeah. any thoughts on that? Now, this does get back to this idea of parable versus metaphor, but yeah. how would you explain that? Absolutely. So in a parable, again, the allegorical correspondences, the degree to which the author wants you to trace them must break down for it to be a good story. Mm-hmm. And how one does that through storytelling is beyond me. I'm not a good storyteller. That was Tolkien's gift, not mine. So um, the answer here, though, is that uh, Tolkien looked at the threefold office uh, of Christ, uh, priest, prophet, king, and divided them between Gandalf, the prophet, the king, Aragorn, and the priest, high priest uh, in Hebrews, uh, uh, Frodo. So here, what he's trying to do is keep you on your toes. Not so you can say at the end, gotcha, I knew what you were doing, but that you you know, you know, get the themes, you get nurtured by this experience with Jesus. But you know, again, you can't trace it exactly. You can't say, Aragorn is the one who actually died like Gandalf because it was Gandalf who did. But then again, as soon as we say that, you have Aragorn descending and, and going through the paths of the dead, which is one of the most 
chillingly written in coolest parts of the return of the king um and so you have that so yeah i, I think that's why you know christ is kind of divided across his threefold offices here in in uh tolkien's books and i think that was deliberate to kind of keep it elusive and suggestive yeah. Yeah, yeah, you get a lot of the elements, but it's you can't just go. This person represents Jesus all the way through the entire Chris, story. No, you cannot. Exactly, that's right. Mm -hmm. So, let's see. Uh, by the way, Nate Warner does confirm. He says it is true. Da Vinci was the first person to describe fluid turbulence. Yes, yes, so. and circulation of the blood. I believe he was one of the first. I did my master's thesis on Da Vinci uh, and his version of the rocks. So I dabbled a little bit in Renaissance oh. history, especially for its you know, the Renaissance obsession with classics. So yeah. uh, anyway, I spent a lot of time with Da Vinci. Good Very stuff. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Very cool. All right. Last question here, also from Nate Warner. He says, oh, man, piercing question here. He says, mm. do Balrogs have wings? I, I don't recall. I have to go look at the uh, history of Middle Earth and the Silmarillion to to see if Tolkien gives a uh, description, which I know he does. Mm. But angels don't have wings in the Bible. That's cherubim. Correct. So um, you know that's close, but no cigar. So I'd have to I'd have to go look. I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that one. But in the movie, oh, they do. man, Michael, you were doing so well until that question. It was I, like, man, you got a Tolkien question. You just ask Michael Chahosky because he'll tell you. But. Looks like things are falling apart now. here in the end. Yeah, they're falling apart, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm real sorry, guys. Bro, um, <laughs> listen this 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 has uh, been really good. Can we? Can yeah. I? There's there is one question I wanted to ask you, and I I honestly, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna ask you another time. Okay. We gotta we gotta. I, I want to have you back on. Here's the question I was going to ask Love you. I'm gonna throw this on. out there. The question I wanted to ask you, and I know theologically you're on a journey right now and you've talked a little bit about that on this show at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, we're look, we're all on a spiritual journey. I talk about that all the time on this show, but I wanted to ask you, I'm not going to, but I wanted to ask you, um, what you would say the gospel is mm -hmm. and, and, and whether we truly see that in Tolkien, I'm not going to ask you that question because we're already over time, over time but, yeah. but maybe, maybe you could come on yeah. again and we could really just focus in on that question because I, I truly think, and this is where, this is where you're going to have people who still watch this episode and mm -hmm. are going to say, no, Lord of the Rings is a Catholic story, Roman Catholic story, but it's not a Christian story. And, mm -hmm. and Michael, I'm, I'm one of these people who I, I don't have, I love Catholics, love Catholics. I don't have a lot of love for Catholic, the Catholic version of, theology and, and the gospel and, Understandable. and I think you and I could have a fruitful discussion about that, but I'm concerned that if we go there and I'm sorry, I know I'm throwing this out there no. now, but you leave the best part for last. I, mean, I don't leave them yeah. anymore. You got, but, exactly. We'll do this again. Anytime you want me on, I'd be honored. I would, uh, let's do it. And I'd be my honor. I, I would, I would love oh, to talk because I, because specifically in relation to Tolkien, yes. I think that is going to be a question people are going to walk away from, yes. from this with is okay. It's Christian in the sense that Catholicism is Christian, but is Catholicism Christian, mm. biblical Christianity, Orthodox? Yeah. And that's going to be the question that a lot of people are going to have. And I know. You know what I, we should do, Joel? I, I yeah. think this is great. We should talk about the salvation question 
in yeah. as part of a program about Roman Catholicism in the Lord of the Rings, because there are several parts of my book we didn't get to touch on, obviously. Yeah, right. Um, that talk about the Catholic elements specifically. And I'd love to talk to you about purgatory, the Catholic and the Protestant and the new middle way version that Jerry Walls is proposing. Mm. And yeah. uh, which is pretty powerful stuff. Interesting. Yeah. And um, also Matthew Emerson, I think he's a Protestant uh, who wrote a book about Holy Saturday, uh, about the descent into Hades that Jesus mm -hmm. made and all what the implications of that are and how this all relates to Tolkien's mythology. Let's do it. And we'll also, um, it'll be helpful and fruitful for me just talking to a Christian brother to, to figure things out. So cool. Cool. We need well, iron sharpens iron. So let's do it. Absolutely. Proverbs 27, 17. That's it. All right. Um, okay. So, um, for, for everyone still hanging in there, uh, I got to tell you this, this was a fascinating discussion. I mean, there's a reason why it's gone now about an hour and 40 minutes, because this is just fascinating stuff. Epic. And I, I think that each of the topics we covered today, I would, we could have an episode on each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, super helpful stuff. Let me just, again, really quick recommend Michael Jahoski's book. It's called the good news of the return of the King. And if you're just now tuning in, you're just, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, you're just now tuning in, go back. Once this is posted, go back and watch from the beginning. It's going to be very edifying for you. And I want to recommend that you, you go and you get his book and they can get the book on Whiff and Stock. They can get the book on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, I read the Kindle version. It's on Kindle. Um, what's, wh which, which way gives you the most, uh, proceeds or, or is there any, difference? um, all of them are fine. You know, this is a ministry for my wife and I, we, I wrote this book. I wanted people to, to know Jesus in an imaginative way. So I don't care. Uh, you know what? I, I, I didn't get into it to, to, to make money. I just want people to read it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. That's what you want to make about. money though too, though, right? Well, I mean, it helps. It'll help my kids. That, yeah. that makes me happy. <laughs> Look, it's it's okay. Um, the money part's great, but I mean, I mean that. I know it might yeah. sound cheesy, but I really do. I don't know how the proceeds things work, and the royalties are a small fraction. So, mm -hmm. um, just get the book and let me know what you think, and let's dialogue. and And thank you all of you for your support, and Joel most of all uh, for having me on. I, I can't tell you how much it means to me. So, thank uh, you. It's my pleasure, man. My pleasure. All right. So, everyone, thank you for watching. Can I just encourage you to share this video, share it on Facebook, Twitter, parlor, me, we, all the social media connect with the think Institute on all those social media platforms as well. We are coming up big on those insurgent social networks like parlor and me, we, but if you're other traditionalist networks, the establishment networks like Facebook, Twitter, we're on them as well. We, from time to time, we'll post a picture on on to Instagram as well. You can learn more about partnering with the Think Institute and the Sedicase family. Yes, we are support raising missionaries through crew. We are non-woke missionaries through crew. And um, I just put that out there in case anybody has any questions. But you can learn more about that by going to give.cru.org slash 101-8841. Send any inquiries or questions, comments, concerns, or otherwise to thethink.institute at gmail.com. So I certainly hope that you heard something helpful today. I know I certainly did. Very helpful. This is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. That's about all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think.